you know, there's a saying, if you're not growing, you're dying. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, when we reach roughly about 50 agents, you know, realize that, you know, there was a lot more opportunity to just keep growing. And as, as our systems evolved, it seemed like it was a a limiting factor to say, you know what, we're only going to, we were only going to limit, you know, ourselves to this many agents. So once Mm -hmm. we went from 50 to went to hundred, 200 and, you know, just started growing from there. This is the real estate podcast. A show by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. Let's hear from our host, Matt Teifke and Alex Kaufman. Hey everybody, welcome to the Real Estate Podcast. Co-host Alex Kaufman here. And today we have Romeo Manzanilla with Realty Austin. He is the broker in charge and he's also the president of ABOR, Austin Board of Realtors. Today we dive into the Austin market, the real estate market, and exactly you know how he's been successful and what led him to where he's at today. Hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for coming, man. Yeah, um, yeah, no problem. This is the we somehow got the name the Real Estate Podcast. Oh, really? Okay, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. So we have uh, Romeo. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you Manzanilla? Yeah, Manzanilla. All right. Yeah, Thanks it, for- and it's funny because you know actually. Um, Romeo is fine, but I actually actually tell people it's Romeo because that's oh, the way I actually grew up, like Alpha Romeo, and especially with the reintroduction of Alpha Romeos back in the market. I'm like, it makes it really easy to reference that and say yeah, it's, yeah. it's Romeo, like the car. Got yeah. it. I yeah. like it. Yeah. That sounds cooler. Yeah, right. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds, it makes you sound more exotic. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, thanks for coming, man. I know you had a, a good weekend at the wedding. I was at a wedding. Um, mm-hmm. You have a good weekend? Yep, had a good weekend. Right on. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, maybe we could talk a little bit about. So you're with Realty Austin, correct? Been there for a while. Yes. But if you if you wouldn't mind, maybe uh, a quick background. I I believe you were at Dell early on. Is that- yeah. So so actually, if you, if you go way back, I was actually I was in the military. So I was actually a pilot in the Navy. Oh, right on. Yeah. And where did where did you grow up? So I grew up in Southern California. Okay. Southern Los Angeles area. Um, I actually went to school out there too. I went to USC, got mm-hmm. my undergrad at USC, uh, my MBA from Regis University in mm-hmm. Denver, Colorado. But um, yeah, Navy, and then getting out of the Navy, uh, met my wife in Corpus at the Naval Air Station. So rather than go back to LA, stayed in Texas and um, came to Austin to work at Dell. Nice. A, what made you? So, two questions. Do you know Brian Witten by chance? Um, he's a like, he's a local guy. He was on our podcast last week. He's very a similar story. Yeah, really? he's a, a pilot. He was he still is actually. Uh-huh. He, he's in the reserves, I guess. So okay. he goes and flies and uh-huh. was doing jets. And he's got a company called uh, Hornet Capital. Okay, and they do like hard money and okay. do some flips and wholesaling and stuff yeah. like that. But uh, similar, he he told us he said. It's the only job where you can fly like a multi-million dollar plane and have all this responsibility and make like 80000 a year. I know. That's really, that's what it is. I mean, you're flying you know, aircraft that's like $30 million and you know, you're making less than uh, probably a bus driver. <laughs> wow. So you I actually mean, flew the planes? And yes, wow. yes. Yeah. So I was in, yeah, I lived in Japan for a while in South America. You know, it was all um, Rimpack or Westpac uh, cruises that we oh, did. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, he was talking about landing on the carriers. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's uh, definitely the first time, you know, it's an oh crap moment. I mean, because you're, it's a, it's a controlled crash landing is what it is. Yeah. Because you're hitting the deck at like 120 miles per hour at full throttle. Because if you miss the, the, the line, you want to be able to have enough 
momentum to take back off. So that's what we're asking. I was like, do you ever just like take back off if you it doesn't do, look like it's you, going well? Well, you, you, you practice on the landing strip before you actually go. You do touch and goes, you mm-hmm. know, and that's what it is. It's just, you know, getting used to being able to take off in a very short uh, distance. He, he said that uh, the first time you land on the back of a carrier, uh, you're by yourself. Was mm-hmm. that true in your case too? Yeah, because you're, you know, the instructor doesn't want to get killed if you. Right. <laughs> that's what he said. He's like, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, because it's happened. In fact, um, before I reported out to the replacement air group a week prior, they had a training accident, uh, and they, um, and it's called a ram shot when you hit the back of the the carrier, and that's exactly what happened. And so we're we we get there to the carrier, and they're doing their crash investigation, and literally in the hangar bay, they have all of the pieces from the aircraft that just impacted, you know, with the carrier the week before. And of course the, the pilot was killed. So you're going in, you know, new, new pilot, you know, getting ready to do your carrier qualifications. And then you're seeing like pieces of aircraft right there. And you're like, Oh, I, you know, definitely don't want that to be me, but just all these things come in the Jeez. back of your mind. Yeah. Is that, do, do those go wrong often or is it super rare? It's super rare. I mean, it's super rare. I mean, realistically, it's, I mean, obviously it's, it's pilot error in that situation. Uh, you just have to rely on your procedures and your processes mm-hmm. um, and obviously have confidence. And if it's one of those things too, if you are appreh- you know, apprehensive at all, then you need to speak up, you know, because you're literally taking life, you know, your life into your hands in that situation. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's probably not much room for error there. There isn't. I mean, there's, you know, on the carrier, there's four lines you're going to hit, you know, with your arresting hook. So typically you want to hit line two, line three, you know, because if you're hitting line one, that means you're coming in too low. Right. And if you're hitting, you know, coming in, hitting line four, it means you're coming in too high mm-hmm. because that's your last line. So if you're hitting two and three, you know, then, you know, then you've got it down. Yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming it's much better to, to go off the back than, you know, because people can survive if you. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you dunk, I mean, if you dunk, you know, into the ocean. But the thing about it, too, you're carrying so much velocity and it just depends on how Shit, you. I didn't think about yeah. that because it could just keep going. Exactly. Well, it's, it's also not a, I guess everyone probably is a little bit different, but it's also not just a sh- you know, straight line with nothing in the way, right? Like you're coming in and then you got the ship right in front of you uh, mm-hmm. with the tower and everything else. Well, you've got, I mean, when you're doing you're lining up what's called the meatball and that's what's telling you if you're too high or too low. Um, but when you're coming in in that situation, I mean, you've got, I mean, you're the only aircraft, obviously, um, that's landing at that part. They have other aircraft that is staged, but, uh, you know, you've got very short distance to hit that uh, hook and yeah so how many times would you say that you've actually landed in that situation uh i mean you know so so day you know landing during the day is not that hard it's at night that is harder and then especially if you have swells you know because the ship you know depending on how the swells i mean they could be moving eight to ten feet Mm -hmm. you know so you can imagine you're hitting the moving target um but your total to get qualified, you have to get qualified. You but you spend a couple of weeks doing that. Um, so I probably 50, 60 times. Wow. Yeah. And at some point, it's just you're not. It really becomes that. second nature. Yeah. yeah, it becomes second nature, especially once you start to know the aircraft um, and you just get a feel. It's like you know, driving. Like let's say if you you know drive a car all the time and you get the feel on sure. when you know you're going to lose grip or traction things like that. Which is another thing that I like to do now. It's like I. Yeah, I, I like to go to the racetrack a lot and drive on the racetrack. So it's definitely... Uh, There's something about it. We were talking about that with Brian. Like, guys like that, that 
there's you're seeking some kind of thrill like it you is. enjoyed it like to me i'm like i don't want any part of that yeah it's <laughs> just you know it's just that that uh you know kind of living on the edge you know and just uh mm-hmm. especially with speed yeah do you still fly at all i don't I, I haven't kept up my hours in a long time a friend of mine uh, and i'm not in the reserves um so a friend of mine used to fly charter and when he flew charter i'd be able to get some airtime with him but since then it's been several years probably been like 10 years you miss I just, it at all or? i do i do but you know I've obviously focused on other other things now, yeah. and it's something that you know. If later, if I wanted to pick back up, then I can you know I can definitely sign up at the local airport and get mm-hmm. some airtime, and mm-hmm. yeah, right on. And so you moved to Austin from Corpus. Yes, so I moved from Austin to Corpus to work at Dell. And what were you doing uh, at Dell when you started there? So I was operations manager for their Optiplex line, which is their business line. Mm-hmm. So it was over in uh, in Metric, um, so the Metric facility there. And then eventually they opened up the uh, Palmer Lane facility. But I was there for really just a couple of couple of years. Um, but early on, right? Early, like, yeah, in the late like, '90s. So it was you know it was during their heyday, right? The stock was splitting, split a couple of times, and you know that. You know, Dell was the place in Austin to work. Where was their first location in Austin? On Breaker Lane. On Breaker, then Metric, then Palmer, then Round Rock. That's right. Well, you know, Round Rock, of course, is their their headquarters. They don't do any of the manufacturing there. It's all just headquarters. But um, they do the majority of their manufacturing here locally on their Palmer Lane uh, facility. That's by Palmer and Jaeger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you were there for three years? Yeah, about three years. Okay. Yeah, about three years. Um you know, ended up leaving there uh, and then going into into real estate uh, because at that point it's like uh, you know saw the market was doing well. So I actually got to live through the uh, or work through the uh, two thousand seven two thousand eight market you know, crash. Luckily, I've always been into tech and I was really leveraging online reviews. If you remember City Search, do you remember that? That was like the original Yelp, basically. People okay. would review. So this is back in like the late two thousands. Um, I remember I made it a point to to get re- my clients to leave me reviews, you know, based on the positive experiences that we had. So I think in 2007, um, I was the highest rated realtor in Austin nice. on City Search, and mm-hmm. again, that was you know, and City Search was a big thing back then. Um, so that helped me through that whole downturn in the market as mm-hmm. well, and actually helped me gain market share. So how do you, obviously you were probably in a good spot with Dell and mm-hmm. how do you transition from leaving that to, was it full brokerage that you were doing or did you jump into a salary? No. I, so for me, I got into it just actually for flipping homes just because, you know, back then the median home price was in the low 200s. Um, and then compared to... LA, where I was from, I mean, it was like a third of the cost, and it just seemed like it was a no-brainer to get into. So initially, coming in just to be able to flip homes, and then word of mouth gets out with friends. Oh, you're you know you're in real estate. Hey, I was thinking about buying a house. So I kind of ended up just transitioning into doing residential more as a as a side thing, and then became a full you know full time endeavor. Mm. And yeah. what was the home flipping? What did that look like? I mean, like the more uh, insight like were you making offers on the MLS, talking to wholesalers, writing letters? Like, it, what it was, was that? it was primarily you know it's prim- primarily MLS, um, and that was why I became a realtor 
in the first place to have access to to the MLS. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I was looking, I was looking up on tax rolls. I was looking at distressed properties. You know, people who were behind on their taxes and sending out letters in nice. some of the situations. So, you know, luckily um, had a line of credit, so we could come in. And it wasn't necessarily like the we buy ugly houses, you know, model, um, but. So, something along that line, mm-hmm. yeah. And you had a couple partners, or yeah, just... uh, I had one partner. Nice. Yeah, I had one partner. That was all. That was um, had worked at IBM for several years and local guy as well. Were you kind of still? Were you at Dell while you were transitioning, or did it, you just jump off? He, we had talked about. He and I had talked about doing this, uh, and then just seeing where the market was. Um, and if you remember, there was a dot com bust that was like in two thousand one, two thousand two. So what we actually did during the dot com bust is that we were going in and we were buying assets from these dot coms, and everything from like printers to copiers to workstations to and pennies on the dollar. Mm-hmm. I mean five cents on the dollar. You yeah. and your you and your partner. Me were? and my partner. Yeah. So we'd go. So I remember like when the Jillian. Do you remember that company? They were a big. They, they were a big tech company here, and they went under, and they. I mean, they spent so much money on their facility. We went into their auction and we probably bought something. You know, we bought about half a million dollars worth of workstations for like twenty thousand dollars. I mean, really? so yeah. And then, I mean, and then so what we do is you know we turn around and then we have wholesalers that would buy from us. Mm-hmm. So you'd make like an easy you know, 50, 80 grand just like off the bat. So wow. So were you all storing any of this in a warehouse or it was just? Back to back. It, it was, you know, so it's depending on who, you know, which wholesaler, you know, they, they actually would, we would, we would use a company to come and crate everything. So they'd come in, pick it up, crate everything. And then from there, the uh, wholesaler had arrangements to come in and pick up the crate. Gotcha. So y'all weren't stuck. No, we weren't stuck holding. Not at all. Nice. Not at all. I mean, it was it was one of those things because we got the auction list beforehand. And so we'd already start making calls. So we already knew it's like, you know, where we needed to be. So that's so it started off with like equipment and those things, and then we started looking at houses, you know, housing, and that's how we transitioned. Interesting. So you always go ahead. uh, So you're completely out of the uh, computer hardware industry now. Yes, yes. I mean everything. You know, I think there's been such a you know such a uh, shift. You know, where even Dell, if you think about it, Dell is. Uh, Dell used to manufacture all of their equipment. Now mm-hmm. they they outsource a lot of the manufacturing because there's there's no money in hardware. It's all in services. Right. It's all in you know, IT and web services. Right. Yeah. What it uh, so it sounds like you're pretty entrepreneurial. Like yes, just focus on making money on different aspects. Is that something you've always been? Uh, yeah, pretty pretty much. I mean, I always. Yeah, I think like with any industry and any uh, any profession, so long as you have a passion for it and are are looking for that opportunity, mm-hmm. you know, then that's, that's always what I've nice. kind of lived by. Yeah. I like it. And did you, are you still flipping houses or did you kind no, of? No, I, I, you know, I stopped doing that once I really started going full time into it. Uh, and obviously in two, in, uh, the last time I flipped some houses was back in 2008 when the market, you know, crashed, um, not the market. Well, the market did crash, but the housing market as well. Um, and I was able to b- pick up some, some, some homes that were distressed, uh, some DR Horton homes that uh, out in Mainer that like sold for nothing. You Brand know, so new, new. They're like one, like two, three years old. Yeah. Because what was happening back then is that they were, uh, some people were getting into homes, at no money down, 
And then what some of the builders were doing is they were buying down the rate. Mm-hmm. So if you remember that, they would buy down the rate. So let's say your first year, the you'd have a 2% interest rate. And then the second year, it'd go up to like 4%. And then the third year, it'd go up to whatever market is. So when people could qualify at 2%, they, you know, they could make the payment, but once it started to go up, they couldn't make the payment, and especially right. with the, you know, the downturn in the market. And since most of those people had bought no money down, they had no skin in the game, right? right? So they they would just walk away from the property, and so I was able to, you know, take advantage of that back. But that was 2008, and that's probably that's the last time that. Who were you buying them from though? Uh, from the owner or from at the auction? Or? So it was both, you know. So in some situations, you know, there were short sales, you know, short sales, um, and in other situations, it was at auction too, mm-hmm. you know, courthouse. I've got a, just a uh, kind of like a theoretical or philosophy type question, like because. I got my license in 2012, so I was in high school in 2009, so yeah. I didn't really get to uh, really experience that. Yeah. As far as like the lenders and the buyers going crazy and everyone getting loans, how do you, and I know it's probably a complex uh, answer, but like, who's at fault? Is it the, is it the buyer? They should have known what they're getting into. Is it both the lender? Was, you know, cause it was all disclosed, right? Like sure, you knew you sure. had an adjustable rate. Sure. I, I mean, ultimately, the, the lender and the guidelines the lenders use are there as a safety. And what they were doing is that they were getting <clears throat> creative with, like I said, buying down the rate to be able to get people into properties that now, that they would qualify now based on whatever the arrangement was without necessarily worrying, you know, what was going to happen a year or two down the road. Um, I think, you know, Mostly, mostly affected was a lot of the first time home buyers, and you know if you're a first time home buyer, I mean, you're just happy to get a house. Mm-hmm. So I think you know they they were optimistic that it wasn't going to be an issue. It wasn't you know and when they were coming in buying these houses with no money down, and you know builders were making it so easy, um, then I think a lot of people just took for granted just the the whole struggle of home ownership as far as you know saving and for down payment and so forth. So I think you know there's a lot of uh, mis you know. Un- uneducated decisions that were made by consumers, but at the same time, I think uh, lenders and builders were taking advantage of mm. these uh, so programs. Yeah, so, so, so it's, it's complex. Both. Yeah. And what about for yourself? Like when you're out flipping these houses, were you were you able to, as far as understanding the market and being a little bit more sophisticated, take a big advantage of these type of loans and kind of know what you're getting into? Because you could. I don't know what it was like, but if you're getting a, it's probably not 2% for flipping, but it was probably a lot easier to get a loan then than it is now for flipping. Yeah. And we, we had a line, we had a, you know, a line of credit. So we were coming in, you what know, was the rates on well, super so, low. Yeah. I mean, back then, you know, back then it was something, I mean, the line credit actually was pretty low. It was like at 6%, but you know, but our average uh, holding time of these properties, cause we'd come in and, you know, rehab them if they needed carpet and things. I think on the average you were spending something like, Six thousand dollars a house to come in and just paint, you know. So yeah, they're know, like three years old. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's just really just some cosmetics, you know. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the you know mechanicals. I mean, they still had warranties. I don't mm-hmm. know. That was the thing about it, you know, water heaters and yeah, you know, things like that. So air, air, who were you? So after the crash or during the crash, who were you getting to to buy these homes in the middle of the downturn? So oh, so so typically it would be other investors that would come in and buy them. You know, it's because by then, if these communities were already built out, they didn't have those uh, regulations in terms of having to be owner occupied. Mm-hmm. So investors would come in, and you know, they they'd come in, and you know, we weren't making like 
50% margin on these homes, but, you know, we were making somewhere like, you know, 20 to 30% margin on these homes. So it wasn't, you know, it really wasn't a bad deal for right. us. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight now, I think I should have just kept, we should have just kept them all. Right. Yeah. Okay. What, that was, <laughs> well, my question was going to be is like, did you consider that? And you know, I, I get I, both we, sides. We, we didn't want to get into property management and sure. we didn't want to go, you know, in, down that road. So we, you know, cause we weren't sure how much, how long we wanted to keep doing this as well. Mm. But of course, you know, if, Hindsight, you're like, damn it, you know, these houses that, you know, we bought for $85,000, $90,000 and sold for like, you know, $120,000, $130,000 are all like two fifty dollars now, right? Yeah. <laughs> to triple your money, but, you know. And this was all out uh, east? P- primarily east, uh, you know, so Maynard, you know, that uh, area, Elgin, you know, because so, again, you could get a, a three-year-old house for, that was originally like a $150,000 house for like $85,000. Yeah. What, what would it rent for? $1,200, $1,100? Yeah, right around there. Right around there. About $1,200. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We need to introduce you to Brian because yeah. he, he, Pilot, he was flipping houses, like similar stories. Yeah. Pilot, Corpus Christi, Austin, <laughs> yeah. flipping houses. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's a good connection too for, yeah. for hard money and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this episode sponsor is brought to you by... Dream Chasers, interviews with the future, hosted by Adam J. Carswell. It's a, it's a podcast that Matt and I both follow. We love Adam. He's a, he's a great guy, adds a ton of value to um, us and his listeners and anybody that he interacts with. He has uh, some very uh, valuable guests that come on and they share a lot of valuable information. So make sure you go follow him. Uh, make sure you go to dreamchasers-ix.com. Give him a follow. Go subscribe. Give him a five-star review. The link's down in, in the description. Now back to the episode. I've I've flipped probably five houses. Uh-huh. And the way I've looked at it is that I, I feel like if I was to go full-time into flipping, essentially I'd be working myself into a job. Mm-hmm. That's what it always seemed like. I'm sure you can have systems. Sure. But I got into real estate to have the flexibility and the freedom. And yeah. The, the flipping concept never really was something that I love. Like, I enjoy doing it here and there, but not mm-hmm. making it a full business. Yeah. No. Is that something you saw and you're like, I don't want to do this anymore? Yeah, and it just, you know, for the same reason that we didn't hold on these properties, you know, and get into, like, property management. It's like, didn't you know, you didn't want, I didn't want all my time just consumed by having, you know, to worry about, you know, our holding costs and, and contractors not showing up and, you know, those type of things. It's just after a while, it was like, and once... And once other people caught on to um, to the opportunities in the market, it started to get more and more competitive. So those those margins were starting to you know, decrease as right. well. Yeah. So eventually you're like, no more. Yeah, no more. And you know, just really just focused on just uh, the sales, residential sales, and just moving that way. Mm-hmm. And what did that business look like as far as like, how did you, you know, go from? I guess you were flipping and people started knowing your name, but. Mm-hmm. What did it look like scaling it up, and like what was your, kind of your process to become? It, it was you know like like anything you had to invest in your marketing materials, right, and making yourself known. And one of the things that um, that really helped me was that I worked on a lot of marketing collateral, like professional collateral, uh, everything from like brochures to flyers to, and then really uh, being early on with things like Google, you know, AdWords, you know, back. Back in the day, I mean, really leveraging city search and city AdWords. search, all those AdWords, everything, and because that was you know starting to quickly gain a lot of momentum in how people were finding you. Mm-hmm. So you know, and I I you know I bought a bunch of domains as well that had you know, and back then it's like you know you could 
you could find you can still find domains, right? Now it's like everything that's worthwhile is already owned by somebody, right? But um, I actually had uh, AustinHomesForSale.com. Nice. <laughs> what did you do? With it? So I sold it. I sold it. Yeah, I sold it several years ago. So. I mean, are, do you wish you didn't? I'm just kidding. Uh, you, you know, now it's no longer so much about the domain. It's more about the content and, you know, and backlinks and, you know, those type of things. Back then, it was really about the domain. Yeah. Man, I feel like, <laughs> and, you know, there's always new opportunities, but I feel like there was this time period where I just missed out. I wish I would have been in it like five or ten oh, years earlier. Oh, yeah. But there's always new opportunities. There's always. I mean, now it's like, you know, we have a social media. Look at social media. Yeah, I mean, it's it, constantly it, changing. And just like Gary Vee says, I mean, social media, social media marketing is in its early stages right now, you know. Right. Yeah. You think about social media. Social media, is, you know, marketing is free, right? It's word of mouth. It's totally word of mouth and the the scope and the breadth of how wide you can, you know, reach an audience with just, you know, word of mouth. It, where back then you, you had to pay for any sort of online marketing, right? Mm-hmm. You had to pay other than, you know, I remember just on my websites um, having to pay for backlinks because that was one of, you know, one of the, um, one of the qualifiers for what we call a PR score for mm-hmm. Google for the algorithm. So I remember, you know, having to pay for backlinks so that this site would, you know, link to mine and, get, and it raises the credibility of your site, all those things back in, you know, mm-hmm. back in the day. But now it's just like you have something that goes viral and it's like instantly just, you know, catapults you to right. being top of mind. Yeah, it's, it's always changing. And it is. Now it's TikTok, you know. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I know. We're, uh, that's why we're doing stuff like this. We're always yeah. working on it. I just started doing Instagram more because I've always been tied to Facebook. Mm-hmm. And like I'm getting like tons of people reaching out to me on Instagram. And I was like, I told you. I, or not, I was just telling you, like, I think Instagram is where it's at. But it's always evolving. Yeah, it is. It is. It's well, it's it's different. It's different uh, consumers for each platform. It like is. LinkedIn is more, you know, B two B. Instagram mm-hmm. is pictures and yeah, and whatever. Well, it's so funny because um, I have a fourteen year old son, and you know, of course, Snapchat is where it's at, right? So you know, he's got a phone, and he never uses his phone. Like if I text him, he won't respond. Or if I call him, he won't pick up. But if I were to DM him on Snapchat, then he's on it. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, dude, come on. You know, you have a phone for a reason, not just you know to send pictures. But that's you know that's what they uh, how now like that particular generation how they communicate. Yeah. How does that work for do you? Do you stay active on any kind of social media? Uh, yeah. So I, I don't. You know, so I'm not actively. Yeah. I'm not now in my position as a broker in charge for Realty Austin. I'm not actively procuring business. Like I've got some clients that are high net worth clients that uh, we would do off-market type of transactions, those type of things. Typically, um, as a broker in charge, then I'm referring out the majority of my business to to the agents That's as one well. of the things I wanted to ask you about was, uh-huh. like, how did you get, like, what was, you got to a point and then you transitioned and you said, I'm, for the most part, not going to sell anymore and mm-hmm. I'm going to build the team. And were you at Realty Austin the whole time you were? Yeah, so I was there. So what we did at Realty Austin, so Realty Austin's owned by Jonathan Yvette Boatwright. And we went into this expansion phase where we were going to start to create these markets. Uh, so I first basically came on board. I was already there at Realty Austin, but, uh, but became the market manager for um, the Northwest market. And then several years ago, about uh, going on four years ago, we transitioned again and we started operating under the system called EOS, which is Entrepreneurial Operating yeah. System. My wife actually is working on 
teaching traction. Really? traction? Yeah. 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 So we operate on their EOS. So that's where we had another reshuffling of uh, positions. And that's when I became the broker in charge for the entire company. Very cool. Point. So very cool. But um, but yeah, when I made a decision to become the market manager, then I started focusing on the growth of the the company itself and not necessarily up, you know, procuring business for, for myself. Because obviously, as the company grew, margins grew, you know, profitability grew. Then, then yeah, my, you need, you need yeah. somebody to do that, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it's and I have to say, I mean, it's it's nice to like I was just at the wedding this past weekend. Nice to not have to worry about showings on the weekend, and you know, because it, it's a hustle, right? I mean, it's definitely a hustle, and I do miss the interaction with um, prospective clients, you know, because you always meet interesting people. Uh, but I do like the availability to be able to plan my weekends mm. and plan like if I go on a vacation and not, you know, not stressing about this deal blowing up or this, because it always, you know, it always happens, right? The saying is always like, if you want to get busy, take a vacation because as soon as you go on your vacation, that's where, you know, the, the uh, client you've been courting for three years decides they want to list their house that, that weekend. Right. And <laughs> the idea too is to work on the business and not be the business Correct. as the agent. That's, so if you have, you know, 400 Romeos out there selling houses is better than you out there doing it. That's right. You only have, you know, so much capacity, right? But are the agents calling? Do they call you a lot? So so what it is that we have and we have different layers. So the agents have their sales manager for coaching and training. Um, I have several broker support managers for more of the risk mitigation, contract questions and things like that. And then I handle more or less the litigious mm. items uh, or things that are more of a, a more pressing nature. Mm. So it does keeps that happen it, a lot. It does. I mean, yeah. we're, you know, we're going to sell about 4 billion this year. So, you know, roughly about uh, 11,000 transactions. Wow. So you can imagine. Are they usually quick solves or like when it com- comes to you at that point, is it like it, you got to talk to the broker and how are we going to solve this out? It, it depends, right? You know, it, it depends whether or not there's a, a legal angle to it. You know, I, I, confer a lot with uh, our attorney in certain situations, but you know, we're, we're, we have a big target on our back, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously being a large company, uh, having E&O insurance, then attorneys on the other side, you know, know that a lot of times E&O companies would rather settle than litigate because there's a threshold there, right? It's going right. to cost, if it's over $60,000, then they might litigate, but if it's underneath under $60,000, a lot of times it's just easy, easier to settle, even if, you know, we did absolutely nothing wrong, but just knowing that it's going to cost money to defend. Do so, you, uh, real quick on the litigation, um, so how many agents do y'all have? Uh, so we have s- about 600 agents and about 200 licensed assistants. So we have t- technically about 800 licenses. Gotcha. And total doing about 11,000 at least this year? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what the statistic on what percentage of those go into litigation or someone tries uh, it's, to it's, sue it's you? It's a low. I mean, you know, I mean, this year, you know, if you count legal demands um, and, you know, litigation, I mean, this year, it's probably something like eight, maybe. So it's 8%. not. No, not even percent, like eight total deals. Oh, yeah. Wow. We, we, and, you know, and really the reason is that we are very process oriented. We have a lot of processes when uh, agents are turning in paperwork and even in how they present paperwork to really mitigate that risk. So a lot of times, you know, that's one of the things that's like, you know, we, we require a buyer's rep. 
require our agents to go over the IABS form with their clients. Not just present it, but actually go over it. Mm-hmm. It's because a lot if you take those extra steps, mm-hmm. then it really does diminish the uh, possibility of getting sued because you have fully explained you know, your role within the transaction as well as what risks are involved in whatever endeavor the, the mm-hmm. client's taking. So, yeah, I'm curious because, and wrongfully so, because um, I've just been lucky. My, my whole philosophy has been like work with integrity, do the right thing, don't worry about the small details. Mm-hmm. I know that it's extremely important, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Uh, especially when you start, like we don't have a target on our back. Uh, yes. But like, what what are maybe some kind of examples of? I don't know if you can think of like what what goes wrong that is like a sixty thousand dollars. You know, the, the number one thing is going to be disclosure issues, right? Whether I mean, found it, they didn't tell that there's yes, foundation and, and, now there's plumbing. And, and obviously, obviously the you know the seller is if we're representing the seller, the seller is responsible. But what happens is that if along during the transaction or during the make ready the the agent finds out that there was an additional issue that the seller doesn't want to report or, you know, or is reporting to much uh, minimalizing the, the issue. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the agent has an obligation from a risk mitigation to disclose. So right. my theory is kind of true. Uh-huh. You know, you, that's, that's where the integrity comes in. That's where it you comes have in. To, you know. And sometimes you have to, you know, sometimes, you know, you can't be driven by just commission, right? It's like, you know, you're listing a million dollar house. I'll give you an example. Like we had, uh, had some agents that listed a $4.3 million house. The home had prior, um, flooding issues, which were disclosed. But during the, during the make ready process, there were, there was mold that was found in certain mm-hmm. spots and the seller was saying, well, I'm just going to take care of it. You know, I'm not going to report it. And no it's need like, to mention yeah, this. no need to mention it. Right. $4.3 million listing. Right. So in that situation, you know, we went around and around with the seller and the seller was just saying, no, it's going to kill the value of our property, but it's what the condition of the property is. And in that situation, it's better to just let that listing go than to risk the you know, risk being sued down the road. Right. Yeah. Because it's one. So there was, there was a mold. They found mold and they wanted, they took care of it, but they didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. They didn't want to disclose it at all. Right. But even which then, one, it seems if you took care of it, it doesn't seem like it's that big a yeah, deal. But, is but it? the problem is, is that it, they took care of what was visible and but there was really signs that there would be mold in other areas. But it got to the point where basically the seller's like, "No, I don't want to. Like, I don't want to know anything else. Like, don't like, do not touch anything else." Because he knew that there was, you know, going to be there was okay. going to be, you know. So you know, and so in those situations, I mean, you get the sense when somebody's being shady, right? Yeah. And you're like, "Okay, do I want to align myself with you know with this person?" Yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, I guess my theory is true. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, is like. Because I try to make things simple. It was like, just be integrity-driven. Exactly. Like, and I've, only, I've had some tread complaints, um, and, and I've gone through the process, and everything mm-hmm. was fine. And yeah. It, and it always checked out. It's like, yeah, I, I can stand by everything that I've done. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, I don't know what their title is, but the guys with Trek are pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. You know, integrity nope. is definitely the best way to operate. However, it's also good to document that it integrity, is. and that's yeah. and that's what it is. You know, so disclosure issues, and you know, one thing that I can't overemphasize with agents is that you, you need documentation. It can't ever be a, like he said, she said situation. Right. I'll, I'll just give you guys a quick example. Like we had an agent that listed a property that um, again, flooding is a, you know flooding. Can be an issue, and what happened was that he listed the property. He disclosed to an unrepresented buyer, which he knew. 
he knew it wasn't necessarily like a buddy, but he knew they went to to go have lunch. And he said, look, I just want to let you know that this is the issue. Well, the buyer ended up buying. And sure enough, like two months later, we had the, this is maybe about five, six years ago. We had like super heavy rains, property floods. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it wasn't disclosed on self-disclosure, but, you know, our agent told him verbally, but there was no documentation of it. So then the buyer says, I don't remember having that conversation with you. Right. And what you, conversation? You know, yeah. What conversation? And, you know, it cost, you know, it cost our agent something like $35,000 in mm-hmm. that situation. Yeah. So it's, you know, you have to document, even if you, you know, if you have a discussion, just a recap saying email, text, saying, hey, per our discussion, X, Y, and Z, because then you're documenting. And that's something you train your agents on. Exactly. So when I'm talking about some of the risk mitigation practices, I mean, those are, you know, those are really, really key. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, it's it's unavoidable to run into people like yes. that or, you know. It is. He may have actually forgotten the, the conversation. Who knows? I know. I know. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to happen. And yeah, I mean, I mean, we, you know, we had a deal just a couple months ago where, I mean, our agent was... Friends, you know, like literally friends who got to dinner with the um, with the clients, and you know, once money gets in, gets involved, the friendship's out the window, and you know, they got an attorney involved, and you know, of course, you know, our agent was like heartbroken, right, because he considered them friends, but once you know somebody hires an attorney, that attorney doesn't care about your friendship; they right. care about you know, basically being able to get some sort of settlement. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. We were talking about that today. Is like you can you can spend years and have good relationships and. Things can go south like that. Yeah. It's so crazy. Yeah. I guess that's just the nature of it you know, is. negative things. It is. And sometimes negative. it's uncontrollable. Sometimes it's market conditions. You know, sometimes it's, you know, it's like if a, if a client feels it has buyer's remorse and feels like they overpay for a property because they had to come in and bid $40,000, $50,000 over list and then they have buyer's remorse and it's like, well... That's the market. Yeah, that's where we're at right now. That is market value now. Yeah, it is. Exactly. Exactly. So when you're doing some of these, you know, maybe personal or, or, or these other like larger off-market deals, mm-hmm. you ever run into issues with appraisals? Typically, those off-market, you know, are going to be cash transactions. Okay. So it hasn't really been, you know, an issue it's in those situations. It's a situations. different world. It's a different world. Yeah. 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 Are yeah. y'all it, running into problems with appraisals just you, Realty you know, Austin as a whole right now? You know, we're... You know, there's a lot of people are using the appraisal, the lender's appraisal addendum. Are you guys familiar with that? So yeah. it's where the, the buyer is committing to making up a difference where there's a shortfall. So if we're on the list side, then that's happening. And, and that's a conversation that we're having with every single client just to, you know, let you know. It's like, you know, right now you're like, at, we're at one point, one month of inventory. And especially if a property comes on the market at market value, you know, it's going to go above market. Mm-hmm. So you're having that conversation you know, ahead of time. So buyers have to, you know, know that they're going to have to come in with some extra money to be able to make up the difference. Mm-hmm. Where we're really feeling it is if you're working with FHA buyers or any government back loans, right? VA, those, I mean, first of all, those, those are typically first time home buyers that don't have a lot of extra money to put in. And then second of all, you know, when you're a seller and you have a cash offer, you have a conventional finance offer, and then you have a you know, FHA or VA or USDA uh, back loan, then you know that that appraisal is going to be tighter. So, you know, so unfortunately, a lot of those first time home buyers are being left out of the market just mm-hmm. because they don't have the means to be, to make up a difference or their type of financing isn't as competitive as other offers. Wow. So I'm curious, you, you have a ton of things going on. Like mm-hmm. what is your, 
if you have a way to explain it like day to day and what is your process, just general process of how you approach things in life? Like, is it mm. pretty regimented or what does it just, what does it look like for you? Well, you know, from a, from a company perspective, like I mentioned earlier, we operate under EOS and the, the theory behind EOS is that you have these quarterly rocks and it's, it's your goal, you know, your objective uh, for the quarter. So you're, you're always working towards that, you know, achieving that, uh, that goal. The day-to-day, uh, it, it really varies. I mean, it really varies. It depends on the situation. I think, you know, for us, we're a very agent-centric company, and that's why we have relatively low turnover because we do provide somewhat of the easy button for our agents, automated marketing, automated, you know, systems, all these things, and all the risk mitigation uh, tools and processes and things like that. So for us, you know, we're always looking to see what sort of value we can add not just to our agents, but also to the consumers. Um, but I mean, day to day is completely different. I mean, like everybody now, you live in Zoom land, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know a lot of you know different meetings with uh, different departments and so forth. And then my role within the Austin Board of Realtors as president that also keeps me you know pretty busy as well. Whether it be media interviews, whether it be uh, doing introductions for different speaker series and things like that. So, okay. so, so it's it goes, like a lot of just people networking, talking. It is. It is. It's just, you know, again, uh, primarily all virtual now, you mm-hmm. know, because a lot of uh, in-person events, I mean, obviously have been sh- pivoted and shifted to mm-hmm. to virtual settings. When did y'all start uh, implementing EOS at uh Realty Austin. Close to four years ago. Close to four years ago. And we, you know, we've graduated because we have a consultant and the first three years the consultant would come for the quarterlies. We've graduated since then where we only have them come for the, our year, uh, year end or beginning of the year or two day uh, planning. But, you know, we've gotten the system down and uh, it's been really, really effective in terms of establishing who's responsible for what and establishing lanes. Like I, I have nothing to do with the philanthropy or the or the culture within the company. Yeah, you know, that's Yvette Boatwright. That's her for, you know, forte. That's what she enjoys. That's what she's really good at. Um, so that's her lane. Mm-hmm. So you know, everybody has their defined lanes because ultimately, what you're in charge of is going to be, de- you know, your success is going to be dependent on whether you've been given the latitude to be able to make decisions within. You know, within that lane. That's cool. Right. Yeah, my yeah. wife's like super passionate. She's trying to become an implementer. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because when you explain it to people, sometimes they take it wrong and they're like, this is just a, you know, some kind of cheap sales pitch or whatever it is. Uh-huh. But then you talk to people like you and, mm-hmm. and we're doing it with our with our management company and we're going to start doing it probably. is like, it truly is a really valuable thing. And it's... Yeah. It's, it's no secret, I feel like. It's just keeping things detailed and having a process for yeah. it. It's just, just a way to do that. Just structure. Because you can do it on your own, uh-huh. but are you going to do it? Probably not. Yeah, and, and it's scalable, right? Because like if, you, if you're doing, you know, wearing multiple hats, it's going to get to a point where you can't scale, right? You can't replicate yourself. So this process, you know, it allows for, for the systems to be scalable. Do you think a lot of brokerages use it? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I would say no, right? No, like a couple, uh, maybe, maybe a couple, you know, nationwide. Uh, I mean, none that I know of necessarily here 
in um, in Austin. I, I will say that the Austin Board of Realtors actually, per our recommendation, started to implement some of the uh, I was aspects of that. Oh, that's too. cool. You yeah. can use it on anything, right? Yeah, you could do it on anything. Um, and it's, fu- it's funny because I have a friend who's a car dealer, and he uses EOS too. And he implemented it about you know three years ago as well. So, do you, so do you think for us, like, it's basically Alex and I, mm-hmm. and we have our marketing guy Andrew. He's he's out right now, but. Mm-hmm. We have forty-seven agents. Is that is that something we, we I guess we could implement it, but it would just be him and I for now because we don't have like the other yeah. What do you call it? The uh, team leaders or sure, sure. You you could do it. You know, it's a it's a defining your roles, but like we we have a weekly leadership meeting, right? Where you have basically all of the different department heads. You know, of marketing, um, IT things like that. So you still make decisions, and part of the process, the IDS processes identifying discussing and solving issues right as a group so you still are in the know of of what's happening but but the implementation and the execution of whatever the solution is Mm -hmm. ultimately falls on one person but the decision Mm -hmm. about how to address it is a joint effort so Mm -hmm. so you know so there has to be a lot of um, self-discipline and respect that you have Full confidence that the person who is in charge of that is going to execute it uh, properly the way you know, it's been discussed. Right. Have yeah. you ever had any problems with um, people like having the rocks or whatever? Uh, it's, you know what it is, is that, you know, we, you have in the way the process works is that every week when you have your meeting, you discuss your rock, whether it's, uh, it's on track or not. And if it's not on track, then it gets moved from just being a rock to an issue. Mm-hmm. And now the group works together. Whether you know you need more resources to be able to um, to finish that, or you need more, you need more time, or there's some sort of external factor that's causing you to miss that deadline. Mm-hmm. Then you know in those situations, just like you know, like the pandemic, right? Nobody expected a pandemic. You know, you could have had certain rocks in place. Sure. And that completely got sidelined by you know the pandemic. Or let's just say you know you're going to do something. In the market, and the market just all of a sudden just drops, right? That mm-hmm. can completely affect your rock as well. So when y'all start uh, the EOS, you come up with what the three, the seven, the ten. Yeah, that's right. The plans, the uh-huh. three-year plan, the seven, yeah, the all ten. Right. What's the what's the seven and the ten-year, and have those changed since y'all first started? We have, you know, I, I mean, we have, you know, modify them. Uh, and, you know, we have a financial aspect. We have a size of agents as well. But I will tell you, one of the things is that we're pretty particular about the agents that we bring on board because our average agent sells close to 7 million. Uh, and we do have a minimum to come on board and stay on board because realistically, I mean, you could just use the processes that we have in place and you as an agent should be able to sell 3 million at least without any problem whatsoever. <coughs> so we have those processes. So, you know, so we know that there is a uh, theoretical cap of how many agents, because there's some agents that will never leave their brokerage. Some agents, you know, our brokers have their own brokerage and they have no interest in joining us. So, you know, so we do set those goals, but they have, they have shifted some um, just depending on how the market is uh, evolving, adapting. I mean, we've looked at, you know, what does it look like if we were, you know, to replicate ourselves in different cities Mm -hmm. as well, right? And our processes. Of course, there you also have to deal with uh, business culture differences too. Mm -hmm. You know, the way people conduct business in 
Houston is different than the way people conduct business in San Antonio versus Austin, right? Some some cultures are more tech based, some are more like, you know, just handshake or, you know, word of mouth. So there's there's those challenges as well. But we have right. we have shifted some, but not, you know, we haven't really deviated a whole lot, but we have uh, you know, in some situations said, no, you know what, that's not gonna be a direction we're gonna follow. So we're gonna, you know, we're gonna go from this to this. Did uh Realty Austin as a how long have they been around? Uh, two, since 2004. Okay, so yes. for 16 years. Uh-huh. And then you came on board? 2007. Okay. Yeah. Wow, so you've been around for a while then. Yeah, yeah. So to, I mean, when I came on board, with a, there was a total of 18 of us, um, and I think we did $100 million that year. And like I said, now you know we're approaching 600 agents and $4 billion. And That's we're, amazing. Yeah, and we're, we're actually now the number one brokerage in Austin. Yeah, we've we, not the number one brand. If you take all the KW, and this is not a knock against KW at all, but if you take all the KW brand um, brokerages because they're all individually owned, then they have you know something like three thousand agents, and they have roughly about sixteen percent market share, where we have ten percent market share. But we're the actual largest brokerage in terms of production. The one, the one shop instead of it, all these exactly instead of all these brands. It's like you know if you take all the Remaxes together, they sell. More real estate than anybody in the world, right? That's their their motto. But we are actually the number, the highest producing brokerage within Austin. Did y'all start out wanting to grow the brokerage like that, or no? Just kinda... we, we were initially, you know, had an idea that we were going to be boutique. Um, but you know, you know, there's a saying: if you're not growing, you're dying. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, when we reached roughly about 50 agents, you know, realized that you know there was a lot more opportunity to just keep growing. And as as our systems evolved, it seemed like it was a, a limiting factor to say, you know what, we're only going to we're only going to limit you know ourselves to this many agents. So once mm-hmm. we went from fifty to went to hundred, two hundred, and you know just started growing from there. Awesome, yeah. Man. So um, I don't know if you are able to talk about this or not, but would are there a lot of companies that want to buy? Realty Austin? Uh, I think, you know, there's always that, you know, you always have a lot of VC money that goes, you know, that gets, is being pumped into the the industry, right? Um, obviously, you have companies, you know, you have companies that are like, you know, Redfin and Compass, and again, not knocking them out of their models at all. They have, you know, they're, they're tech companies, you know, first, and then they entered into the uh, space. Um, but I think, again, we're, you know, pretty successful company and there's you know if somebody wants to enter the market or expand their market then we would be somebody that you know they they would talk to yeah yeah that's cool but we don't have you know we don't have really any intent or inclination to do that because we're still growing right yeah you know? do you look at buying other brokerages well we did that last year mm-hmm. you know we bought riley realtors mm-hmm. um their culture was very similar to ours and we ended up with about 120 of their agents okay so they yeah. did when you were going to buy them, they had 120. Or? No, they had about 145. And some left. Some left. Some weren't, you know, quite to that bar that we talked about. Mm. That's not um, many. I no, mean, it wasn't 20, 25 or 25, so. Yeah. yeah, so it wasn't. And we actually uh, took on some of their staff as well. You nice. know, uh, but they were a good culture fit because that's one of the things is that you know we're a very forward looking company, progressive, um, and we want these uh, agents that appreciate mm. tech. And, and that progressiveness, right? If you're an agent that you don't want your cheese moved, you know, mm-hmm. and, or you, every time there's a new piece of technology that's introduced, you just, you know, you cringe, then we may not be a good fit mm-hmm. because we're always looking to 
you know, we're always looking to implement where the market's going. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And it's not just implementing change for the sake of change. It's for staying relevant in this market. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where do you feel the uh, real estate market is going, and especially from the brokerage and agent side of things? I mean, I hear a lot of fears about people saying, you know, Zillow's coming in to take over. You're not going to be uh, relevant anymore. And well, I'll tell you. I mean, I mean, Zillow. I just read an article by Rob Hahn, uh, which is a well-known writer, um, talking about Zillow being the apex predator. You know, because they were expecting in Q3 to lose something like sixty-five million dollars. A lot of it because of their i buying model is kind of a lost model, but they ended up making like $16 million. I mean, they are still, you know, they, they accidentally made money. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where that really necessarily trying. I, I think like anything, you know, whenever you have com- competitors that come into the market, <clears throat> if you're just kind of sitting on your heels, then yeah, you should be afraid. Right? right. But it's always competition that, that causes innovation. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have to innovate and you have to say, well, how do I, make myself better than what they, you know, that they're offering. How do I, you know, go back and look at my strategic plan and, you know, what I'm doing. So I think there's, I think if you're, you know, a brokerage and you're kind of just doing things the way you've always done it, then I would be afraid. Right. Yeah. I would be afraid. I think if you have an open mind and say, you know what, what they're doing is a great idea. And, you know, in this industry, there's a lot of, you know, repetition. There's a lot of things that are copied. Right. And it's like, Hey, that's a great idea. Why don't we start doing that as well? There's nothing wrong with that, right? With not reinventing the wheel. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But you know, but I think if people just kind of you know dig in their heels or put their head in the sand and say, nope, they're just a fad. I'm going to survive. Then you know, you're you're not long for this world. Well, I mean, here in Austin, anyways, it's uh, a ext- even if you, the eye buyers or you know all that stuff wasn't here, it's an extremely competitive market. You've got you know. How many, President Abor, how many agents do we have here in Austin? Alone? I mean, it's like 15,000. 15,000, yes. right? You know, and uh, you have to differentiate yourself. There's a ton of competition there. Everybody's an agent. Everybody can help you sell your home, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so regardless, you'd have to go out there and, you know, yeah. learn how to hunt and fend for yourself. It, and, you know, realistically, I mean, we're in a people-person industry, right? It's based on relationships. You know, people will, if they like you and they respect you, and they respect what you know, I mean, they'll want to do business with you, right? Mm-hmm. So in a lot of, there's a lot of automated systems out there that obviously give you valuations and things like that. But the actual sitting down with somebody and somebody inspiring confidence and being able to guide you, I mean, there's no, there's no way to automate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And you can't automate, you know, 15 offers over asking. That's right. That's right. I know. Yeah. That's right. Because sometimes, you know, and sometimes, you know, the numbers... Yeah, you could do a CMA and the CMA supports this price, but you know that that price changed last week. Exactly, you know? exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always a uh, it's a trailing indicator, right? CMAs appraisals are all a trailing indicator. You know, anywhere from three to six months ago. It's like, well, what about now? Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. That's a good point. That's a hard job. It is. Appraiser. <laughs> it is. Yes. So um, okay, well, you know, I know we got all got busy days. Um, what would you say? Are there any ways that that we or the listeners can add value for you, or or any anything you need help? I with? think you know one thing in this industry with just being as competitive as it is. I think, and obviously we we're in a very divided country right now, and not, and not to go down the political route, but we're in a very divided country. I think that you know we have to definitely 
maintain a high level of professionalism within our real estate industry. Uh, also, as a realtor, I mean, you're representative not just of yourself, of your firm, but the entire industry as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we want to definitely move away from any sort of image that realtors are just in it for the money and they don't serve the communities. I mean, look for opportunities to give back to the community because, again, as, as a community flourishes, and you're going to develop that good karma, mm-hmm. it's going to come back to you. Mm-hmm. Right. I like it, man. That's good. Yeah. Uh, well, usually I ask, uh, I want to try something new. Usually I ask advice for entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and, and I guess it's the same thing, but do you got any advice for us as you know, young business guys? We've got brokerage, a construction company, management, wholesaling. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, you know, I feel like the EOS is something that you yeah. probably nailed home for me. Mm-hmm. Finally. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's always opportunities to make money in different ways. Right. But, you know, I, I would, the only thing I would advise is just don't spread yourself too thin. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you could have, you know, you could lose track of things. Right. Totally. And, and, and sometimes, you know, it's just a, the two of you, but maybe, you know, if you're bringing up somebody else to the same, you know, if you're going to do EOS implementation, bringing up somebody else into the leadership, you know, meeting as well, that you can hold accountable, that mm-hmm. you're going to give them the tools that they need to be able to, right. to grow. Well, right. Let me ask you this, because what we've done, and I agree with you, uh, and hopefully we haven't, but what we've tried to do, like with this construction company, Alex and I own 30% of it, mm-hmm. and then the 60% is the people that are running and operating the business. And so what we're doing is with leads and this kind of stuff. Yeah. And we have the same setup with these other branches. Is there a way to do traction with all of it at once, or would each business have its own traction? It you know it depends. I mean, you could do you could do it all at once, but it really kind of depends on if the goal because because if you have different departments working, then the goal has to be the same for everybody. The ultimate goal, mm-hmm. right? So because that's how they connect, right. right? So if there isn't that connection there, because mm-hmm. like this one is completely independent. If this one fails and this one succeeds and it's it's okay, it doesn't affect the overall goal. So you have to find whether or not there's a unified goal for all of them. Otherwise, cool. you'd have to do them individually. It'd That's have, a good. It'd have to be different. Yeah, yeah. Well, so. no, I mean, you could get creative, right? Like we could, we could set it up where the TRE brand essentially is set up to eventually buy all these businesses out to become all ours, and you know, have set criterias on. Milestones, and then we could sell the whole company. The, the, the only thing that you have to be cognizant of is um, you don't want to do in the OS what's called um, rock stacking, where I can't complete my rock unless you complete it. Because then if you can't complete it, then that makes me fail at mm. the same time too. So when you look at that sort of structure, you have to see whether Got you it. know those things can be you know individual um, and not affect the overall, like, oh, this department didn't make it, so the entire thing failed. You Got know? it. Right. Yeah. That makes yep. sense. Great advice, man. Thank yeah. you so much for your time. Um, how can people get a hold of you if, if they... Uh, I mean, my email is romeo, R-O-M-E-O, at realtyawson.com. Cool. Um, that's probably the easiest way to get a hold nice, of you. Nice, man. Well, appreciate your time. Thanks for being on. Hope you guys have a great week. Yeah, that's it. Thanks for All tuning right. in. Peace. Right. Thank you.